you see this writing, do you know what it means? Hospitality. And you can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. Going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. We're going back to the movies. Movies. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another mini episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, on my own today. Nat is in the middle of a move, and we have a big episode currently in production, so there wasn't time to get y'all a full episode this week. But rather than leave you with nothing, we're putting out another one of these mini-episodes where I come to you solo and give you a brief review of one of the films that we couldn't squeeze into our regular schedule. Back to the Movies is a podcast where Nat and I revisit years of cinema history, examining the films that made it what it was, Our first season is on the year 1990, and if we had our way, we would cover literally every film that was released that year, but that's just not feasible and wouldn't make for good podcasting. So a bunch of movies had to get cut as we tried to tighten our schedule down. It's still pretty crazy. We're still covering a lot of weird and esoteric films, but we couldn't do everything. This is one of the movies that we weren't going to be able to get to the two of us together in the main feed. But now you get it as a bonus while we are working on something bigger. Eagle-eared listeners will know that that is our sequel spectacular, where we are looking at five franchises that all had entries in 1990. It's going to be an awesome episode. Hopefully it'll be coming out next week. Definitely tune in to that. But it's worth mentioning because there were a whole bunch of films that we considered putting in that episode that didn't make the cut. There are a bunch more sequels than the ones that we were talking about. And I'm going to be looking at one of them today. The infamous best bad movie, Troll 2. Now, I seriously debated whether to cover this movie, and to be candid, this is my second attempt recording an episode, because so much has already been said about it. I also don't really consider myself a connoisseur of bad movies. I've seen my fair share. I went to an LA screening of The Room one time, and I met a deeply confused Alec Baldwin who did not mean to be there. That's a story for another time. Hopefully we'll get around to it. The thing that I find is I have a problem with the so bad it's good argument, partly because I would rather have things that are so good it's good, but mostly because I find that it often comes across as demeaning or marginalizing. The Room is a pretty good example of this. I think a little bit too much of the humor that surrounds that movie comes from the fact that Tommy Wiseau talks funny, and that feels bad to me. I'm not saying that people who find that funny or like the movie are bullies or whatever. Just that when I laugh at it, I sometimes feel like I'm punching down. So because of that, I'm more interested in the phenomenon of bad movies than in the bad movies themselves. I love mystery science theater, but I would never watch any of those movies on their own. So I was nervous to even watch Troll 2 because I was worried how it would make me feel, if I would feel guilty or if I would feel bored. On top of that, I sort of felt like I already had seen it. This movie has become such a touchstone in the culture. It's entered the culture at a broad enough level that even my fiance, who is not nearly as immersed in film ephemera as me, had some familiarity with it. The oh my God meme, pictures of the goblins are all over the internet. The peeing scene is infamous. Uh, So I wasn't sure if there was anything left in the movie that would surprise me or that would entertain me or if I'd seen it all before. I say all this because the thing is, I was wrong. This movie 
lives up to the hype. It's sort of a weird thing to say, but I honestly can't think of a better way to put it. It's the best bad movie I've ever seen. And I don't mean best in an ironic or patronizing way. It was genuinely a blast to watch. It is vivid and silly and reaches this sort of sublime, surreal level of humor where you're not laughing at the people who made it, but at the improbable alchemy of all of their combined talents and gifts. I'll get more into that later. I actually have an example where I want to break that down because I think it's a really interesting and important distinction in what makes Troll 2 so special. But before we get into that, let's do the background stuff. Ben's Book Report Corner. If you are a Troll 2 aficionado, you probably already know all this. If you don't, it's actually pretty interesting. Part of the reason we chose not to cover this movie in the sequel episode is because it's not really a sequel. There is a movie called Troll came out in 1986. It was made by Empire Pictures, which was an independent production company and distribution house started by Charles Band. You may have heard of that name before. He is his own kind of mogul in the straight-to-video and independent movie scene. After Empire Pictures, he would go on to found Full Moon, which did the Puppet Master movies and a whole bunch of other stuff. So when it comes to -to straight-to-video schlock, Charles Band is a big, big deal. But he also did some theatrically released movies as well, a lot of those through Empire. And they had some solid credits. Reanimator, one of my all-time favorite movies from Beyond, another from director Stuart Gordon. We should be covering one of his on one of these mini-episodes if we need that to fill, so keep an eye out for that. Troll isn't nearly as good as Reanimator or From Beyond. It's definitely a footnote in Empire Pictures catalog and probably wouldn't be remembered at all if it wasn't for Troll 2. It's a family fantasy movie about a troll that moves into a city apartment building and slowly begins to transform it and its inhabitants into this magical fairyland. Side note, the protagonist of that movie is named Harry Potter. And that movie came out in 86. Sorcerer's Stone doesn't come out till 97. Interesting coincidence. Uh, the movie did have a slight cult following. It did well on home video. And that'll be important in a second. Separately from Troll, we have an Italian filmmaking team, Claudio Fragasso and Rosella Drudi, a husband and wife who had made movies together before, would continue to make movies after this. Drudi had the inspiration to make a movie about vegetarian monsters because she was frustrated at her friends who had recently converted to vegetarianism, and she settled on making a movie about goblins. They pulled together an Italian production to film in America with some American producers who are the ones that changed the title to Troll 2 in an effort to increase the movie's marketability. I highlight this change because it's just one example of what makes this movie special. As you're watching it, you will eventually hit the point, and I'm sorry to spoil this for you now, where you realize that there are no trolls in the movie outside the title card. That's it. And that moment is kind of special because it is indicative of an unapologetic bravado in the face of incompetence that makes everything so damn fun. The movie was made in Utah. The cast is almost entirely amateur actors. The crew was almost entirely Italian. Fragasso didn't speak very much English. Almost none of the crew spoke English. None of the cast spoke Italian. They basically relied on the costume designer to do the translations whenever there were any major conversations. It was made on an incredibly low budget. Basically, it's a miracle that anything was filmed at all. Normally, the next thing I would do would be go through the plot, but I don't actually want to in this case because 
I don't want to spoil the surprises that you may not know. If I haven't made it clear, I wholeheartedly recommend this movie. And the less you know about it, the better. So I'm just going to give the premise, and then I'm going to talk about one particular scene and try and explain why that represents what makes the movie special. So the movie is about a little boy named Joshua. His family is going on vacation to the country. They're doing like a, like a house exchange with a family that lives there. Joshua's dad, Michael, always wanted to be a farmer, I guess. So they're going to go live in a farmhouse. But before they leave, Joshua is warned by the spirit of his dead grandfather, Seth, that his family is in danger from goblins. Joshua tries to warn his family, but no one believes him. So his whole family, which is him, his dad, his mom, Diana, his sister, Holly, and then also Holly's boyfriend, Elliot, and Elliot's three friends all wind up in this country town called Nilbog. Just pausing to let people who are good at visualizing words to work that one out. And there, Joshua has to protect everybody from the goblins. The goblins look like humans sometimes, and they need to get their victims to eat or drink special concoctions that turn them into plants because the goblins are vegetarians. Don't forget, that's why Drudy came up with the movie in the first place. It's because she's mad at vegetarians. The rest of the movie is basically a series of vignettes of different characters encountering the locals who are all kind of strange and off kilter, being presented with this florid green food and drink, just glops of green, and then either escaping without imbibing or imbibing the food or drink and turning into a plant. There isn't much narrative structure. Scenes don't really follow each other in any kind of logical pattern, but the pace is pretty quick. So the movie is rarely boring. Each of these scenes gets in and out generally pretty quickly. When it does slow down, which is a couple times, there's usually something else to keep your interest, whether it's a piece of production design or a performance or a bizarre dialogue exchange. So the movie is always watchable. I want to be clear that when I say bizarre there, or when I use, when I said incompetent earlier, I don't really mean bad. A lot of it is amateurish, but it's never bland, which is significantly worse. I think a good example of this is the goblins themselves. In their true form, they're just short actors in burlap sacks and Halloween masks. It doesn't get more basic than that, but still they did enough work that each of the masks is different. They're all grotesque and odd to look at and fun to study. They all carry different weapons that are forked pieces of wood with spear points strapped on with leather straps. It looks cheap, but it's not uninteresting. You can spend a lot of time studying the masks and the faces and trying to figure out why they look the way they do. And they're also not on screen so long that that ever wears out its welcome. I want to highlight one scene in particular because I think it does a really good job showing this movie's merits beyond the quality or lack thereof of it. But before I do, I'm going to say in a rare instance in this podcast, spoiler warning. If you haven't seen the movie before, this is when you should turn the podcast off. This scene came as a total surprise to me and was all the funnier for it. I was really glad I didn't know about it before I saw the movie. So spoilers are starting now. Since Joshua needs to save his family for the movie to maintain its family horror tone, like it's not outright horror, we need him to succeed. It's Elliot 
the sister's boyfriend and his friends who suffer the brunt of the goblin schemes. The three friends in particular, they just get picked off periodically throughout the film to keep the stakes high and satisfy the gross-out quotient when they start sweating green goop and turning into plants. The last of Elliot's friends to die is a character named Brent. He has stayed in Elliot's RV when the rest of them have gone out and been plantified. And one night, he is met at the RV by one of the lead goblins, who goes by the name of Credence Leonore Gilgood, uh, and is played to truly hammy perfection by a completely egoless Deborah Reed. She is not afraid to be ridiculous and goofy, and it's a lot of fun. In the scene, she seduces him, and they wind up back in the RV, making out by way of sharing a corn cob that's like wedged between their mouths while they're dry humping. Then the corn begins to pop, presumably from the heat of their passion, and Brent drowns in a tidal wave of popcorn. There has been some debate as to whether or not the movie is intentionally comedic. Fragasso has said that it was, and I think a scene like this is pretty clear evidence to his point. The corn cob turning to popcorn is a gag. It's a visual joke. It's something you'd see in a movie like Airplane. And I think on its own, the joke is reasonably funny. The point I'm trying to make is the movie doesn't have to be laughable to get a laugh. It's also competently shot. The visual language of the joke is clear. The effect of the popcorn appearing functions as it should. I know that might sound like faint praise, but I think it's important to acknowledge that bad movies, quote unquote, that develop cult audiences usually have some level of craft and maybe even occasionally artistry that resonates with the viewers. They're bad, but they're not incomprehensible. They work the way a movie needs to. More examples, I guess, uh, the makeup effects of people being transformed into plants in this movie. What's funny about it isn't the quality of the makeup, which is perfectly fine and occasionally actually unsettling. It's the absurdity of the idea. So to get back to the popcorn, it stands out in the movie because the movie hasn't had the density of gags that you'd get in something like Airplane. We aren't primed for that level of exaggeration. There are some other moments that are somewhat similar, but they're generally played for horror, like the plant transformations, or at least an uneasy Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Stepford Wives type vibe when you're interacting with the strange inhabitants of the town. Here, the absurdity stands in contrast to the film, rather than being a piece with it. But that almost works in its favor. Surprise is a key element of comedy and horror. And... This scene is all the funnier because of how unexpected it is. It goes beyond just the fact that it's a joke where there haven't been jokes of that type. Structurally, it's pretty clever too. Food has been a major element in the movie. And we, the audience, already know that it's dangerous. But previously, it's been dangerous because it transforms you. This is the only time it literally kills someone. So it's repetition, but then inversion, which is just classic joke construction. Do I think the filmmakers were savvy enough to deliberately structure the gag that way? I don't know. Probably not. But it doesn't really matter because it works. There's a lot more that makes the scene funny from the fact that the performances are pitched so high they have left orbit or the inexplicable introduction of the corn to the otherwise pretty standard seduction scene, 
But it doesn't change the central point that I'm trying to make, which, if I had to summarize, it would be that the movie is good because it's good, even if it was by accident. I, I guess maybe that's really what we mean when we say so bad it's good. This is a thing that clearly failed by the usual metrics, but still managed to slip and fall its way into a tap dance. I want to call out an excellent documentary about the legacy of Troll 2 called Best Worst Movie. It was made by the child actor who was in the film when he had grown up, and it focuses mostly on the reactions of the cast and crew as they realize their film has reached a level of notoriety. Some of them, like George Hardy, who plays Joshua's dad in the movie, revel in it. They really love the attention. Others, like Fragasso, the director, get really resentful at being laughed at, at their movie being an object of ridicule. But the documentary also makes time for the fandom. And the sense that it left me with is that Many of the fans, particularly the ones who discovered Troll 2 back in the 90s on HBO, where it aired, or on VHS, the ones who kept the torch burning for it before the internet, before fan communities, when it was just people telling their friends about the crazy things that they had seen, they did it because they genuinely loved the movie, whether or not they realized why. It wasn't something that they liked just because they could make fun of it. It was something that made them happy. So that's all I have to say about Troll 2. Next week, hopefully, we'll get the sequel spectacular. After that, we have an excellent lineup of guests for the next couple episodes, so make sure to stay tuned. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it. It really helps, particularly while we are still growing our audience. Make sure to follow us on social media at Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Gmail. Send us an email, give us some feedback, ask us questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Thanks to Andy Gagnon for our music. And with all that out of the way, let me sign off by saying this is Ben, and we'll see you next week when we go back to the movies. (laughs) ¶¶